Hi, this is Devin Ratliff from Los Angeles, California. If you're enjoying Low Profile, please consider supporting the show by donating at patreon.com slash lowprofile. It also helps a lot when you subscribe and give the show a good rating. And tell your friends. The Morrison family will be forever grateful, and it will help Markley to keep spending time on this work. And now, today's show... Hey, it's Markley here. Welcome to the 26th episode of Low Profile. As usual, I'm super excited to be sharing a conversation with one of my favorite artists, and today that is Professor David Grubbs. The song you're hearing now is called Banana Cabbage, which he recorded in 1996. His friends in those days jokingly suggested that it sounded like appropriate music to accompany a radio voiceover. And I concur. Over the course of the last four decades, David's musical activity has gone from hardcore punk to the fine arts. He's noted for his groundbreaking avant pop group Gastrodel Soul and his collaborative efforts with a diverse group of influential musicians, including the Red Crayola, Pauline Oliveros, Will Oldham, Tony Conrad, Royal Trucks, and even John Fahey. David has also published three books in the past decade. Records Ruin the Landscape, about John Cage and early experimental music, and two book-length poems, Now That the Audience is Assembled, and The Voice in the Headphones, all available from Duke University Press. He's a professor of music at the City University of New York, and his latest album is an improvised collaboration with the Tokyo-based Taku Unami. I spoke with David about all of this and more in late July. David Grubbs, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It's really cool to have you on the other end of the line here. Yeah. <laughs> My pleasure. My pleasure. Hey. All right. Well, great talking to you. I hope you have a lovely night. Okay. Uh, just kidding here. Uh, <laughs> so... Um, I guess I'd like to start by talking about where you grew up. You you came from Louisville, Kentucky, is that right? Uh-huh, that's correct. Uh, what opened the door for you to sort of uh, come into the punk scene? I, I, that's kind of where you came up originally, yeah? Definitely, definitely. Um, there had been a scene in Louisville from, I don't know, 1978, something like that, uh, around the Louisville School of Art. And those folks were all maybe eight or ten years older than I was. Um, I, uh, let's see, I was born in 67. So in 79, I was 12 years old and reading Rolling Stone magazine because I was really into the class, or really into the who and the Rolling Stones and things like that. And uh, suddenly had the idea that uh, all of that stuff seemed to have peaked about 10 years prior to that. And I, and I was curious to know, you know, what was going on now. Uh, and Rolling Stone uh, would, you know, uh, regularly be writing about, at, at that point, mainly writing about post-punk. So, you know, I remember features about the Raincoats and the Gang of Four and Public Image Limited and stuff like that and The Clash. So, yeah, now I formed a new wave band uh, called The Happy Cadavers when I was in eighth grade.
hardcore punk kind of swept in, and that seemed like a uh, a generational or a subgenerational revelation. Um, uh, and so, yeah, and the, the 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 band that I formed next was called Squirrel Bait. albums um, that were on a label called Homestead and so you know played with people like Sonic Youth and Big Black and Husker Du and those were you know like my absolute favorite bands at the time so it was yeah kind of a mind-blowing experience I can imagine so we just listened to a little bit of Squirrel Bait and uh, it seems that now Squirrel Bait has an unofficial line of jeans. <laughs> uh huh. Well, this yeah, this week I uh, I saw the uh, Levi's Vintage, um, uh, their new uh, campaign, and I guess their new line um, uh, explicitly salutes '80s Louisville, Kentucky punk. Which is yeah. very specific. Yeah, I'm as, I'm as surprised as you are. Um, <laughs> I'm not quite sure what to say about it. It did, you know, I was totally <laughs> uh, amused and flummoxed and confused at first. And then I did find out that um, the art director and a number of people who worked on the campaign went to Louisville several times. Um, uh, someone from Louisville was able to get them to make a, a donation to the Louisville Underground Music Archive, which is at the University of Louisville. And some folks that I know actually wound up modeling for the campaign. Um, I mean, the, as far as I'm concerned, the strangest thing was that there was this pastiche recreation of the cover of the first Squirrelbait record. And um, that was a surprise to everybody from Squirrelbait and Brian McMahon, who's in that photo um, that was taken when he was 14 years old of him with a Walkman in his mouth playing it like a harmonica. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, <laughs> like a cu- couple of days worth of amusement, uh, a lot of activity on social media, and then that was about it. <laughs> um, did you get a pair yet? No. <laughs> no. I, I, I like mean, although I, it, I, I've worn Levi's, you know, like 200 days a year for the past 30 years, I guess. So... Um, I mean, it's it's not like, <laughs> you know, it's not like um, a, uh, a tobacco company or, a, you know, car manufacturer or something like that. It is actually a product that I use in my daily life. But I don't know. Yeah, the whole thing's completely absurd. Absolutely. Okay, well, um, so anyway, a- after Squirrel Bait, 
he went on and started another band called Bastro after Squirrel Bait dissolved. I mean, Bastro followed immediately out of Squirrel Bait. We continued to make records on the homestead. Um, And uh, uh, Clark Johnson, who was in in Squirrel Bait, was in Bastro as well. Um, And John McIntyre played drums, who later was in Tortoise and the Sea and Cake and Gaster del Sol. So he's a Louisville guy as well? No, he. we actually we met at CBGB's when he was playing drums in a band called My Dad is Dead uh, that were on the same build with Bastro. He went to college in Oberlin, Ohio, um, which was not, not so far away. Um, so, yeah, we re- recruited him for Bastro. And I, I moved to Chicago in 1990, and John moved to Chicago then, so, you know, for the last... I guess two years of ex- its existence, Bastro was based in Chicago. Oh, okay, I was wondering about that sort of the uh, shift from, because I always knew uh, specifically. I I, I started with uh, with Gaster del Sol, mm-hmm. and knew that that came out of Bastro, and was curious about how the uh, sort of transformation happened from the the Louisville scene to the Chicago scene, and um, whether like you brought some of the same audience in from your your Bastro following into the new stuff that new direction with Gaster del Sol. Yeah, I think I think it was a lot of I mean it was a lot of the same musicians. It was probably a lot of the same audience. Um, you know, it was just people uh, developing and and changing and you know trying different uh, ideas of what it meant to be in a band. So, I mean, Bastro was a power trio that, you know, did one thing and, and did it pretty well. And Gastro del Sol, when it first started, uh, it was exactly the same three musicians who were in Bastro. So it was me, John McIntyre, and Bundy K. Brown. But the idea was immediately was that it would be uh, open to playing with other musicians. And so Jim O'Rourke uh, became part of the group, and, you know, the group could expand to seven or eight people for a show or it could be two people for a show so it really was a kind of flexible flexible concept rather than a group that had like a you know strictly the same membership um you know in the same lineup for each show but where, where did you come up with that name uh you know i think because bastro was morphing into something else we wanted to morph the name bastro into something else uh, and Gatto uh-huh. del Sol uh, was a horse that had recently won the Kentucky Derby. So, you know, frequently you can see the names of the two parents and the offspring of... of uh, sure. So, you know, I, I think ba- Bastro together with Gatto del Sol somehow equaled Gaster del Sol. Oh, that's cool. And kind of bringing in a regional reference into that, too. I think so, yeah. Cool. Well, um... Yeah, I, I was thinking, I, I was never very familiar with uh, the punk output that you were a part of. And so I spent a little bit of time sitting with that. And 
for me, when uh, Bastro is sort of coming to a close toward the end there, that's when your sort of um, very unique style of like kind of lyrical guitar playing started taking shape. Um, just kind of just more like kind of a nice balance of percussive work and um, very intricate melodic work as well but uniquely Grubbsian. When I first heard your guitar playing, it really made me want to play guitar more. Yeah, good. I think that the, that's probably a good sign. Yeah. Either, either, either that or maybe the best sign is that, you know, when it makes people like, you know, uh, no, I'm joking, uh, you know, like give up the instrument entirely. Like, oh, I heard, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe like somebody's really into Ingwe Malmsteen. Yeah, yeah. They Jimmy just throw Page. In the towel. Right, right. I'll never be Jimmy Page. <laughs> so with with Gastrodel Soul, it you you were talking about being open to collaborators and having more people came in, and then that's when uh, so you have Jim O'Rourke, um, who made a lot of really really nice pop records and a lot of really uh, abrasive noisy records as well mm-hmm. um, you got John McIntyre still in the mix and then Marcus Pop of Oval comes in and brings this like kind of lush very uh, early iteration of like kind of glitch music mm-hmm. right into your soundscaping German guy, um, how how did you bring Marcus Pop into the fold? Um, I, we were touring a lot and, and playing in Europe a lot. So Jim and I had both met Marcus in in Germany. Although I feel like kind of out of the blue, he must have sent a record to Jim. Um, but yeah, the Oval stuff when when Discount ninety four came out, um, that was you know I would say that that's one of those handfuls of moments of just feeling like wow i've really never heard music like this before mm. you know the the just the the very basic building blocks of it um you know the the material that he was using was so different from what almost anybody else was using at the time so um but but that was primarily a long distance collaboration i mean we we met him several times um I, you know, I met him in Berlin when I was there with the Red Crayola at one point. Um, but his work on Camouflage was long distance. I don't know. Chicago was a nice hub, and Jim had a, a studio in his apartment. So, you know, Mats Gustafsson would, would come in and, you know, like we would just record him in Jim's apartment. Um, or John McIntyre had a, a studio um, in the loft where a lot of people from Tortoise lived. So, you know, that, that's how we recorded uh, Rob Mazurek um, on Camouflage. So, yeah, people just came through. Yeah, I, I had this picture in my mind um, when I first sort of became aware of the sort of 
indie scene that wasn't necessarily an indie rock scene. Mm-hmm. Me, my, my perception of it was just that it was this big happy family that was spread across regions and, you know, all, geographically all over the place. But, mm-hmm. you know, we had like Drag drag City, Thrill Jockey, Homestead, K, Merge, Touch and Go, all these. Mm-hmm. And um, it just seemed like there was, it was all connected. And um, it, do, you, do you care to dispel that? <laughs> <laughs> notion yeah, uh, it wasn't as, as interconnected as what you just described I mean but the truth of what you just described is that none of this stuff would have happened without the labels and that the you know the the labels not only were artistic entities in their own right um, but they were also really uh, by and large you know with a few exceptions uh, very kind of like ethical uh, uh operations um that inspired one another so i mean discord records always had a 50 50 profit share and as a result touch and go had a 50 50 profit share and as a and you know like following in the footsteps of touch and go drag city and merge also did a 50 50 profit share um i mean i've been making records for drag city for more than 25 years never signed a contract with them you know never had any kind of dispute or bad blood with them um it's incredible most of the labels that you mentioned uh still exist and uh i i think some somehow that that kind of like ethical core um that they all had that really kind of came out of hardcore punk um uh you know that that these weren't I mean, some of these labels have made a lot of money, but that's not why they came into existence. Um, and so, yeah, no, I, I feel like they've all had a kind of strong ethical core. And that, to me, that that as much as, um, you know, musical similarities among artists on the label um, explain what they have in common with one another. Another thing on the sort of family perception that I got so we had um, the Sea and Cake, mm-hmm. the band, uh, and before that was a band, you you had a song in Gaster del Sol. Yeah, that came, it came from the title came from an example in the dictionary, if in the whatever the New Collegiate Dictionary I think it was. Uh, if you look up polyphony, which I was looking up, you know, to better understand the musical meaning of the term. But uh, mm-hmm. there's also the meaning of the term, uh, the example of uh, one letter that in different contexts uh, uh, provides different sounds. And so the examples that they gave were the C and cake and the C and certain. Aha. Um, uh-huh. And those <laughs> are two songs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And John McIntyre had mis- misunderstood the title and thought that it was the C, S-E-A, and cake. And so that's where the the band name came from, from mis- misunderstanding the the Gastrodel Soul title. It's a beautiful juxtaposition of words too that uh, kind of exemplifies their sound. So you mentioned already working with the Red Crayola. Mm-hmm.
I'm guessing you were a follower of them when you were a teenager. Yeah, I was lucky enough to have, you know, the older sibling of somebody who I went to high school with was feeding me records when I was in in high school. Um, And uh, I was curious at one point about the 13th floor elevators, you know, Mm -hmm. just about the only thing that I knew, I was probably like a freshman or a sophomore in high school, was, you know, that that there was this like 60s Texas garage rock psychedelic proto-punk scene and you know there was this legendary band the 13th floor elevators and so i asked this person about the 13th floor elevators and he said no problem you know i'll loan you those records but you really ought to listen to the red crayola also and so he loaned me the first two red crayola records and mayo's solo record corky's debt to his father which is mayo thompson yeah. yeah 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 which is one of my absolute favorite records amazing record mine too yeah amazing so how did you come to make that collaboration happen? Or did, who, how, who made that collaboration happen, I guess, uh, is a better question. Mayo was living in Dusseldorf uh, in the early 1990s, and Bastro had played uh, at the Rose Club in Cologne, which is um, very close to Dusseldorf. And uh, Dieter Stiedersen, who's a German uh, music critic and art critic and was a friend of Mayo's, was in the crowd and saw us cover Dear Betty Baby from Corky's Debt to His Father and he came up mm. afterwards and said like oh you know like um, you know can I please put you in touch with Mayo uh, I'm always telling him he needs to you know like uh, find you know find new musicians who might be interested in playing in the Red Crayola and so yeah Dietrich put us in touch we spoke on the phone a couple of times and the next time I was in Germany I got together with him and worked on songs that um, that eventually were on the self-titled Red Crayola record, and um, yeah, and I uh, passed along a demo tape to Drag City um, during a, a monthly poker game, and uh, said, you know, you ought to really, really ought to, you know, consider uh, reissuing Red Crayola records and also uh, committing to releasing new Red Crayola records, and that was not not a very difficult thing to convince them of. I'm I'm glad I'm glad that happened. Yeah, me too. Honestly, yeah. And that's not the first time you reached out to, or you collaborated with, you know, sort of a senior masters of the stuff that was influencing you. Uh, well, Jim Jim and I were playing with Tony Conrad on and off uh, mm-hmm. around that time, and um, yeah, Jim and I started a reissue label called Dexter Cigar. Um, that allowed us to to release records by Derek Bailey and Mertzbau and Arnold Dryblot and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean that definitely brought us into contact with some of the people that we really admired the most. Slapping Pythagoras was one of the ones that you at least that that's one of the later Tony Conrad releases. It's the first one. It's the first new one in Tony's reemergence into playing music in the 1990s. I mean, I know that he had kind of consistently played music, but he became uh, suddenly visible again when Table of the Elements reissued uh, Outside the Dream Syndicate, the record with Faust, and th- and then the first new album that he made after that, I, I guess 1994, I think, uh, was Slapping Pythagoras, which Jim produced, and Jim and I and you know a bunch of friends, Kevin Drum and people like that, played on 
so yeah that that was yeah super fun really really great that that was my introduction to tony um uh you know spending time with him in the studio and like i play bowed guitar but i also played percussion and uh he's he said you know for percussion i just need you know i need a low sound and a high sound and steve albini was engineering it and so we figured out uh a first baseman's baseball glove hitting a pillow was the low sound and a guitar Mm. cable rolled up and hitting a, a pint glass was the high sound Tony was amazing, just also like incredibly brilliant, uh, wickedly funny person. Yeah, if you if you haven't seen the documentary Tony Conrad completely in the present, I really really strongly recommend it. I have not. So yeah, it I'm came out just a couple my queue. couple of years ago, um, and was on, only uh, accessible at you know at screenings. Uh, until I don't know, maybe like three months ago. Uh, I think now it, it's on most streaming platforms, so it, it's pretty accessible. But it's great. Okay, it's a great, great documentary. That's uh, someone I've definitely been curious about for a long time, and just know by um, a handful of pieces of music. Right. Um, that, and that was your introduction to him personally, or uh, was that your introduction to his music? Uh, it was my introduction to him personally. Um, yeah. What got you into the sort of like 20th century composer avant-garde scene out of coming coming up from like the sort of hardcore movement? Where where did you see the lines begin to blur? Uh, I mean, you just kind of follow your nose, and it, you know, conversations happen in record stores, uh, mm-hmm. college, you know, like raiding college radio libraries is a kind of good way to do that. Um, also, I, mean, I remember John McIntyre was in the uh, conservatory at Oberlin, and I remember being amazed uh, when he you know, made a cassette for me that had Yana Sinakis, uh electroacoustic pieces that were just mm. like, you know, totally wild noise. You know, I mean, that that I, I had no idea. You know, like I thought it was classical music. You know, I. Right, I, yeah. I assumed that uh, that that meant that it had to be made with orchestral instruments or something like that. So, I mean, that that was the first shock of really hearing this electroacoustic tape music, you know, like Xenakis uh, uh, or Luke Ferrari or people like that. Yeah, it's it's crazy. You know, twentieth century classical is far removed from the imagery of. Like say somebody wearing a powdered wig and some blush. I, I guess the, you know, you might find that depending <laughs> on the scene. I get you could look at like say Wendy Carlos or someone. Yeah. Something like that. But. No, I think the big shock for for me though of of like you know what what you might think of as like you know contemporary music or you know like new new music uh, or new composed music um, 
was hearing uh, electronic music that came out of that tradition or electroacoustic music and um, uh, and not having it rely on the uh, you know more familiar instruments that you would associate with with classical music that that was the big shock for me now, so Gastrodel's soul, that sort of came to a close in 1998, is that right? So, sounds about right. And then Camoufleur mm-hmm. came out, and um, the opening track to that, I kind of want to drop a clip of that here, because it's just great, bombastic, it's, it's pop music. September reverses and the equinox is playing. Winter slides into fall. When Glenston leaps of nine months, all the seasons reverse. The spring back and the fall. The season reverse. <laughs> yes. No shame in that. No. I, I'll admit, I actually like it too. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, but the the whole record is really beautiful and a nice way to go out. And that's when we sort of see a shift in focus to David Grubb's solo work. And you had a couple you had a couple releases before that. Um. As a solo artist, right? We had the. Uh, I think there was one Bana- banana, cabbage, potato, lettuce, onion, orange. Yeah, that was from a, the sign from a produce stand in Chicago. Okay, yeah, just solo piano. Mm-hmm. Yes. Del- very nice, tasteful, paced, sparse, lovely piano music. F- um, I remember. I remember friends in Chicago at one point confessing that occasionally they would put it on and do like a mock BBC radio announcer voice over it. <laughs> and then and then uh, uh, not long after that, it was used in a BBC radio documentary <laughs> that act, you know, oh, has man. a BBC radio announcer voice over it. It was a I documentary actually have about written in my notes to do a... It doesn't say BBC, but uh, maybe just do like the recorded intro to this song on top of that music so uh-huh. <laughs> i think uh yeah i think that's definitely gonna happen now good <laughs> um and then the coxcomb which yeah that's I, a really strange record very much it's it's sort of a narrative ballad yeah it's based right? it's based on stephen crane's short story the blue hotel oh okay and it's, so it's one song, a little less than twenty minutes. Yeah, and Oops. and the the narrator is Stephen Prina, um, who is in the Red Crayola. Oh, I didn't I didn't know he was in that as well. Yeah. Okay. I know him from that whole uh, you know that the the Chicago puddle. Uh huh. Right. I guess. Is he a Chicago guy as well? Uh no, Lo- Los Angeles. Oh. Wow. Okay. But he he made a solo record called Push Comes to Love that Jim and I 
produced um, the Drag City released. So he was in Chicago for a bit. Yeah, that that's a that's a terrific record. I like that one as well. So uh, yeah, nice work on the production there. <laughs> Thank you. The thicket comes out right after Camouflage, mm-hmm. right around the same time. Yeah. Um, I wanted to play a little bit of Two Shades of Blue. Okay. To sort of uh, illustrate just uh, sort of the direction that you were taking at that time. perform that stuff live with ensembles because the the albums are definitely a mix of uh there's just david and then occasionally we we hear input from you know that some people get together and make some music yeah yeah i uh i generally toured uh like with small like very small groups like a trio um uh noel Axerte is a french guitar player um, mm. Did a number of those tours. Um, Nico Sveliotis, who's a cellist, did a number of those tours. Um, but it, yeah, it would frequently be me and either another guitar or cello and drums. So, you know, relatively small groups. Now, um, you, you've continued making solo and collaborative releases, as we discussed. Um, you're. But in the last, I guess, uh, six years, you've sort of been making a footprint as an author as well. Took me a while. Took me a while to figure out how to do it. But yes, um, Records in the Landscape was the first book of mine, and that came out in 2014. And then now that the audience is assembled, um, and the voice in the headphones, and I've made a book with Anthony McCall called Simultaneous Soloists so yeah and now that the audience is assembled and the voice and the headphones are both book length poems and the the first two in a, a series of three books um, and I'm I'm working on the, the third and, and last one using that form uh, right now and hope you know by the end of the year to finish a draft of it excellent well, I wanted to start with uh, Records Were in the Landscape, which is sort of a, um, it seems like you're sort of just taking the stance of the 20th century avant-garde composers created albums, but that's not necessarily 
the intended experience of their music per se. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I was, Records for the Landscape is largely about the 1960s and period mm. attitudes towards recorded sound from experimental or avant-garde musicians in the 1960s, where, where I think uh, John Cage was perhaps you know the most important person for setting setting the terms of that discussion. His disdain for commercially released recordings um, uh, seemed significant to me because it seemed so different from subsequent generations um, uh, lack of um, uh, drama around recordings you know that that people uh, you know that recordings didn't seem like such a fatal compromise um, but I was yeah I was really interested in Cage's attitude towards Recordings and the and the way that helped to kind of like shape uh, period attitudes in the 1960s and how different that was from the period in which I was writing the book 50 years later. So in some ways, it's a kind of comparative study of listening cultures um, about uh, you know the 1960s and uh, the first couple of decades of the 21st century and how profoundly different they were from one another. Then do you think John Cage uh, was laborious over the recording of an album for LP release, or just whatever happens happens? No, I think in in many in many instances he took recordings deeply seriously uh, because they were an opportunity for him to work with technology um, that you know that otherwise he wouldn't be able to to do. So like. One of the recordings that I write about is the um, is the first recording of Cartridge Music, which is a duo of, of Cage and David Tudor's performers. It's live electronic music, um, and the album release version is four uh, duo recordings superimposed, um, you know, without recorded without reference to one another. So they weren't playing back previous takes and and trying to synchronize or respond to those. Um, and so I think that, I, I mean, it's one of the like really pleasurable paradoxes of this of this historical material, is that in some ways he just seems very like, you know, uh, almost like comically disdainful. Like who would care about records? Um, and uh, and yet the records that he made were so uh, unprecedented, and you know, and creative and strange. Uh, and and in most cases he did take. Uh, tremendous amount of care in making them and I and I think that like one of the open secrets also was that he cared deeply how people responded to them despite having this facade of like you know like uh, you know why why would anybody you know like have records in their home I want to talk about your your long-form poem trilogy of okay. which the, that you that you brought up here. Um, so now that the audience is assembled, is um, so my experience of it is that I am dropped into the audience at an experimental music performance. I don't know how long it's going to be going on for. What the instrument at hand is going to be, anything like that, and I'm just anticipating well it, it, it's a it's it's kind of like a like a mystery novel <laughs> in a way <laughs> but, uh-huh. 
Um, it's it's full of surprises. It's got a lot of humor in it, and um, also a lot of uh, you know there's there's pain in there. There's um, you know, a lot of a, a lot of edge of my seat. A, a lot of edge of my seat for you know a a hundred and thirty something page long poem. Mm-hmm. It's in. It really is intended as a page turner. It's structured. As a series of cliffhangers. What possessed you to write a long-form poem <laughs> about Lord attending an experimental concert? And what, you don't have to answer this part of the question, but I wonder if this is based on a concert or if it's accumulation of, you know, many things that you've witnessed or been a part of. Yeah, I, I, think, I think definitely the latter. So there's not a single concert or artist that, you know, that gives a key that explains where all of this comes from. But, uh, no, I think, I think that there's, there's, uh, quite a bit in the book that, you know, is, consists of things that I've observed just year in, year out at concerts. It's, it really takes you there. Um, do you have a, do you have a copy of that handy? I do. I was wondering if you could um, read us a little bit, and it's it's from toward toward the end, so I don't want to give up away too much of what happens, but I feel like isolated, this really works. Um, it's being told from the performer's perspective, and uh, she walks in into a room out of the performance area, and the audience is cheering for an encore. Um, so I'm talking about page 106 here. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, she walks into the room behind the performance space and sees a piano. And I wondered if you could pick it up from there and just read through to page 108. Sure. If that's uh, possible. Of course. Okay. Here we go. And I'll read along with you. Okay. Okay. As the musician moves toward the instrument waiting at the center of the room, the double doors through which she entered swing open and applause shoots forth unmuted, momentarily stakes its claim on her, a brief heterophonous din, and then the doors swing shut. She wheels around and makes eye contact with those sheepish first audience members to attempt an escape prior to the encore. The musician takes an immediate liking to them, startles by blowing a kiss. She has an idea. People will exhaust themselves, clamoring for an encore, pack up and leave, and on their way out they'll discover her seated at the piano, playing, an encore already begun. Those who would prefer not to suffer through the encore will be the first who, uh, will be the ones who first encounter it, but they're free to keep right on walking. She reflects that someone did her the service of designing and building this instrument. A few scattered chords demonstrate, demonstrate that the tuning is better than anticipated. The audience will soon be exiting en masse, the performance of isolation, absorption, breath, all of a mind focus. Here I am, seated at the piano, looking so grand. Here I am, without a care in the world, seated at the piano and just waiting for the big reveal. I would happily wait forever. This is my instrument. I know where it ends. It will always be my first instrument, and for a time, I thought of it as my one instrument and also as the means of visualizing music. 
Then I dove into the spaces between keys and learned what's not piano. The piano is neither cello nor blood-curdling shriek. It includes neither pitch wheel nor portamento ribbon. It's not the sonification of data. I know the piano is touch. I turn to the piano as a machine to amplify touch, a machine to flesh out touch. It presses flesh with, it shakes hands with the machinery of my arms, hands, and fingertips. To the extent that I'm free to be ignorant of what I do, it is because of my fingertips, the child in my fingertips. All right, that's an excerpt from Now That the Audience is Assembled by David Grubbs, and that's uh, out on Duke University Press. Mm-hmm. I, I like that passage because there's, you know, it's kind of mischievous and spur of the moment. She's and, an improviser. Yeah, exactly. Now, how how do you uh, how do you feel about your process these days? Are are you more inclined to improvisation, composition, or I, I'm sure there's a balance there, but where where do you lean? As as a guitarist, I'm I'm leaning towards improvisation like I never have before. Um, improvisation for years for me was something that I, I don't know, kind of aspired towards but didn't didn't really occupy the right headspace of. And somehow, as an older person now, age 52, uh, I, I can uh, access that headspace. It just took me a long time. And your lyrics have long been very, very poetic. Um, very, you, you know, you're not, you're not sticking to the meter and the, you know, this is going to rhyme with that other thing. But um, I never wrote it's, or it's, published poetry before because I wrote song lyrics. I mean, I really had the medium for that. Mm-hmm. But um, with these books, just because they're, they're long narrative works, right? They, they, uh, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't record these texts as song lyrics. Um, yeah, I just, I found, I found a way to do it, um, that I wasn't able to do before. This particular book, though, um, parts of it anyway, did wind up being recorded for an album. Isn't that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I had the idea when I started working on this, that, uh, it should be a kind of like flexible and multifold kind of, um, uh, text or, or object so um, the text from now that the audience is assembled has been published as a book um, uh, there's an album called One and One Less that, that's uh, with Eli Kessler playing drums and me reading kind of earlier version of this text um, I've made wall drawings from it Eli and I made a sound installation from it we, we've performed it um, and that that was one of the goals also in in writing these long form poems um, that really there were many many uh, media and you know modes of performance in which they could be realized and we we have the next part of the trilogy um, which is the latest mm-hmm. is the voice in the headphones yep and uh, it can you just uh, for for our listener just kind of spell out the 
the thesis, I guess, the, the idea <laughs> the, behind the, this one. The narrative. You are a professor, of, by the way. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I would. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say that it has a narrative rather than a thesis, and the narrative is that there's a musician who's frantically trying to finish a film soundtrack over the course of one, one long day in the recording studio, and the and the book is really about the the culture and the and the environment of the recording studio and the language of the recording studio. Um, and I found that technical language always very beautiful and very poetic. I mean, there are lots of books that do this, you know, that that uh, immerse the reader in a technical language that you hadn't previously encountered. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe Moby Dick is the most famous version of this. You know, like everybody learns a lot about whaling in reading Moby Dick, and um, and maybe people will learn a lot about the recording studio. Uh, by reading the voice in the headphones. Well, I, I, um, I have spent a lot of hours in recording studios in my day, so I have, I definitely related to a lot of the stuff on here. And oh, good. It was especially funny for me. A lot of the observations that you sort of pointed out that maybe a lot of people wouldn't really think about or put into words. I was wondering if you could read me a passage from this book. Okay. Um, and if, if we can turn our textbooks to page 92. <laughs> okay. And uh, it, if you see what I'm talking about, I was wondering if you could set this up a little bit and then read this page. Uh, sure. I would say that this has a lot of similarities to my recollections of Squirrel Bait's first recording session. Try to summon the terror of the first recording session, to recall to experience again the awful uncertainty coloring every aspect of it, except laying it down, killing it, which is the only thing that continues to matter, but how was one to know? Who cared what might strike a listener ten or twenty years down the line? On its maiden voyage, a raft of teenagers powered through the all-important set list, that mnemonic metacomposition of songs, in the sequence in which they were written and imagined appearing on record the debut album as chronology. Once in the studio, everything did in fact go down first or second take, and after an hour they'd earned a side break. That recording session marked a first time on the clock and a first concern about who knows how we're going to pay for this, even at a soft-spoken hippie's cut-rate basement studio sourced from the yellow pages way out past the suburbs the vocal booth and nook shoehorned beneath the stairs in which the singer freaks out and strips off his clothes just when the studio owner's jazzer friends stop by and ask, you cats in the union? <laughs> now is, is that perhaps a little autobiographical? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, okay. That, that passage always made me chuckle. In this story... There's another band, also in the same studio, next door. Yeah, Studio A. Yeah, yeah. Also scoring the same film on the same day. It's my understanding is a little different from that. That that this fictional okay. group in Studio A, uh, who had like almost almost had the success that the main character in the book never really had. Um, they they are they've come together to try to record essentially a reunion record 
but that it's gone very badly and they've given it up immediately. So they're, they're kind of killing time and offering their services in Studio B. Okay, yeah, they do kind of pop in and offer their, you know, critiques and a little bit of input. Yeah, yeah. The familiar faces. Sure. The familiar faces. Yeah. And I had, you know, several ideas pop up of who that could possibly be, but that's part of the beautiful mystery of this story. And uh, I can't wait to read the next installment of this series. Good. Thank you. Thank you. And lately you've been working with uh, someone named Taku Unami? Yes. And so tell me about that. Uh, Taku's a friend from Tokyo who I've, I've known for 20 years. Um, I've been really fortunate to play uh, in Japan quite a bit. So, mm-hmm. And Taku um, has played in New York a number of times and play, plays in Europe periodically. So, yeah, we made a record in Kyoto uh, three years ago called Failed Celestial Creatures. And then uh, we've made a second record that just came out this summer on my own label, Blue Chopsticks, um, which Drag City manufactures. Uh, And that record is called Comet Meta. to this in my backyard on nice. a boombox uh-huh. and just delightful oh good I got I got the LP for indoors it's 90 degrees now so I don't take my records outside yeah <laughs> wise um, I wanted to ask you again about what's coming up I followed you on social media for mm-hmm. you know since we've been in touch at the very least mm-hmm. and I know that you've got some kind of a collaboration with Yonsei Werner from Mouse on Mars. Yep, yep. Um, Yeah, Jan and I recorded in January in Berlin, and we've made preliminary mixes of it. Um, Mouse on Mars have a really nice studio, so we spent three three or four days there um, and recorded a tremendous amount of material. So... Um, it was really kind of a question of like how to assemble all of this material and what 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 might go with what. Um, mm. But I think I think we've made I think we've made those hard decisions. Um, I don't know who's going to release it. Uh, you know, we we haven't circulated any of it. Maybe it might be nice to try a label that neither of us have worked with before. Um, we'll see. Um, and then the next thing that's scheduled is the second record by The Underflow, which is a trio of me, Mats Gustafsson, and Rob Mazurek. And right after recording in Berlin with Jan, we did a European tour in January um, and thankfully recorded most of those concerts. So it's a double album that comes out on Blue Chopsticks in January. Oh, wow. Of live material. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, drawn from four different concerts. 
That's exciting. Yeah, no, have I'm you, very happy about it. Have you worked with St. Werner in the past? Yeah, we've played on on one another's records before, mm-hmm. but it, but it's the first time that the two of us have you know made made something, um, you know, that's like in the same place at the same time. Yeah, def- definitely, it's the first time that we've worked in the studio together. Wow, I I can't wait to hear what that energy comes across as. I Mouse on Mars is another one of those, just from the the whole universe yes. of. Uh, what I understood as the the new psychedelia, mm-hmm. they they were definitely a part of that across the pond. Yeah, so I, I'm really curious to hear what y'all did together for um, an in person collaboration. That sounds great, and also in the nick of time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if we only knew, I mean, so many people people would have really gone for their bucket list. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I had a pretty good January, you know, like, you know, in in the period right before the shutting down, I, I was pretty lucky. David, I think we pretty much did it. I think we've covered a lot of ground, but is there anything else that you'd like to communicate that we haven't touched on? Uh, not really. I No, I, f- I feel like we feel like we covered a tremendous amount. Okay, well, thank you so much, David. Yeah. Right back at you. My pleasure. All right. Okay, take care. I'll choose the next. I'll choose whatever's next. I'll choose the nearest stopping place. The first fairly shouts. That's Night Errant playing from the David Grubbs album, A Guess at the Riddle. If you'd like to hear whatever's next on Low Profile, you can subscribe wherever you find podcasts. Catch you next time. I'll choose the next. I'll choose whatever's next. I'll choose the nearest i